A senior Russian general claims Moscow's plan for its war in Ukraine is this, focus away from the capital and toward capturing the eastern Bonbas region and all of the southern part of the country. Coming up what life is like in a village near a front line of the war. It's Friday, April 22nd, and this is All Things Considered. Also ahead, a California task force is looking to bring reparations to the state. It's starting with a report on the impact of racism on black Americans. It is expansive and really delves into injustice and inequality in America. But under the plan, not all black residents will be eligible for reparations. This weekend is Orthodox Easter, a holiday celebrated in Ukraine. Millions are fleeing the Russian invasion right now, and some are seeking out ways to mark the holiday. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. markets end the day with the Dow plummeting more than 970 points. That and other major market indices sliding more than 2.5%. NPR's Rafael Nam on what's behind the market upset. It was a tough day in Wall Street, and it comes down to fears about inflation. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is now indicating the Fed needs to be much more aggressive about fighting inflation. That's going to mean higher interest rates this year, and investors fear those higher rates could tip the economy into a recession. NPR's Raphael Nam reporting. Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was under cross-examination in a Georgia courtroom today defending herself against allegations that she encouraged supporters online to attack the U.S. Capitol last year and therefore should not be allowed to run in next month's primary. I never mean anything for violence. I don't support violence of any kind, and I've said it over and over again. Green repeatedly denied or said she did not recall videos, tweets, or retweets about supporting an uprising at the Capitol. A lawyer cross-examining Green asked her if the words to Trump supporters to not go quietly into the night were hers or borrowed. She and others laughed when he offered to play a famous clip from the Humans vs. Aliens movie Independence Day. The actor playing a U.S. president is heard saying humanity will not go quietly into the night. By the time the clip ended, the laughs had died down. Russia's military is openly spelling out the goals of what it calls the second phase of its special military operation in Moscow. And Pierre Charles Maines has more. According to a senior military official, Russia's new objective is to seize full control over the Donbass and southern Ukraine in order to secure a land corridor to Crimea. That's the peninsula Russia annexed from Ukraine back in 2014, when the Kremlin sent its forces into Ukraine in what Moscow said was a defense of Russian-speaking Crimeans from Ukrainian nationalists. Yet the military official, the acting commander of Russia's central military district, Rustam Minikayev, also said control over Ukraine's south would provide Russian forces with other options. That included passage into Transnistria, another breakaway territory in neighboring Moldova, where Minikayev claimed Russian-speaking populations also faced oppression. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Pennsylvania is the first major fossil fuel producing state to start pricing carbon emissions. Here's WITF's Rachel McDevitt. The new regulation sets the state up to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, an effort of 11 other states to cut emissions from power plants. Pennsylvania is the fourth highest carbon emitter in the country. It produces more natural gas than any state except Texas, and is a top energy exporter. The rule takes effect more than two years after Governor Tom Wolf started the process with an executive order. The Republican-controlled state legislature has tried and failed to stop the rule. Lawmakers say they will now take the fight to court, which could delay the state's participation. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDevitt in Harrisburg. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Boston has unveiled a 26-point plan to help residents cope with hotter summers associated with climate change. City leaders unveiled the strategy today, Earth Day, on the Greenway. Mayor Michelle Wu says the plan provides extra resources to neighborhoods that are hotter because they have fewer trees and parks. Heat threatens the health and well-being of our residents, of our infrastructure, and our environmental justice communities, like right here in Chinatown, are especially vulnerable. The city will create a task force to lead Boston's response to extreme heat as part of the new effort. It will also distribute hoses and tents to outdoor summer programs and launch a design challenge to create bus stops that stay cooler. Two children from Ukraine with severe burns are being treated at a Boston hospital. Shriners Children's Boston says they both arrived this week by air ambulance. It took about three weeks to get them out of Ukraine through Poland and to the U.S., The hospital says the children were scalded by boiling water. A hospital spokesman says they couldn't receive proper care in Ukraine because the war had disrupted medical care. A Western Massachusetts college is among at least a dozen in the U.S. to reinstate campus mask mandates because of rising COVID cases. Williams College in Williamstown put a mask rule in place for classes last week. That change came one week after the school gave professors the option to have mask-free classes. The percentage of positive COVID tests on the Williams campus has risen from near zero in March to 2.4 percent now. And 14 people who live at the state-run Chelsea Soldiers' Home have tested positive for COVID and are self-isolating. In 2020, a COVID outbreak there killed more than 30 military veterans. A spokesperson for the state says those who recently contracted COVID have mild symptoms and all are residents who live separately from the long-term care facility on site. The home has increased surveillance testing for the illness. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the 40s, and then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, high temperatures in the mid-50s. It is 63 degrees now at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A senior Russian military commander said today that Moscow wants to control Ukraine's Donbass region to the east and the entirety of the country's south. It would connect Russia to the Crimean Peninsula that it annexed in 2014 and to a pro-Russian separatist enclave that's clear across southern Ukraine in Moldova. NPR's Ader Peralta joins us from Kharkiv to discuss the latest developments. Hi, Ader. Hey, Ari. How are these revelations being received in Ukraine? Are people preparing for what sounds like a a long offensive? Look, in a lot of ways, uh, this is what Ukrainian leaders have been warning about. They have said that Russia was just taking a break and that they had intentions that are much bigger than the Donbass region. Uh, Russia has just acknowledged that they are not only interested in all of southern Ukraine, but that they're also eyeing the pro-Russian separatist region in Moldova. The military officials I've spoken to here say they know what's coming and that they're prepared. And this comes as we are hearing about what city officials call mass graves outside the port city of Mariupol, holding remains of as many as 9,000 people. You are north of Mariupol, which has been another front line in this war. Tell us what you're seeing. 
So look, first, a little about what we know about these mass graves in Mariupol. And it comes from satellite images. It shows that there are about 200 of them. And this is uh, not out of line with what uh, even the UN Human Rights Agency is saying. Um, they say they've documented some 2,400 civilian deaths in this conflict. Um, and here in this city, in Kharkiv, and especially the areas around here, civilians are under constant bombardment. Every day we're hearing shelling, we're seeing plumes of smoke. The emergency services say that they're pulling bodies out of buildings. Yesterday we went uh, to a small town called Malarohan, which is just east of here and about an hour's drive to the Russian border. Uh, we went there to try and get a sense of how this war is being fought. Let's listen and a warning, uh, there are sounds of explosions in this piece. In the middle of a field, we see the charred carcasses of a tank and a helicopter. Both have the letter Z painted in white, which is how Russians tag their equipment. According to our military escort, the village of Malarohan, just east of Kharkiv, was liberated at the end of March, but this helicopter was shot down days ago. As we step out, we get another reminder that this battle is not yet over. Tatiana, a military escort, says a lot of people have died here, civilians, Ukrainian soldiers, and Russian soldiers too, who she says they buried in a mass grave on the side of a hill. The Russians lost the first battle in this war, she says. And now they are like desperate and they just shoot whatever they can, whatever they can hit, like blindly. We see a plume of smoke rising in the distance. Most people in this town have fled. But 67-year-old Natalia Blisniuk says she has nowhere to go, even though her house is in tatters. Uh, the roof is broken, the windows are broken, they have spent a lot of time in the basement. Uh, well, there's shelling everywhere around the village. Do you understand what this war is about? What is it about? No, they don't understand. Who knows who is right and uh, whose fault it is? We need peace, that's the only that we need. Residents we spoke to say it's unclear which army destroyed what. Across town, Ukrainian soldiers walk into a bombed-out warehouse. Russian soldiers turned it into a base, but a Ukrainian rocket smashed through the walls and into the basement, leaving everything coated in black suit. Captain Daniil looks through the spoils. The Russians left in a hurry. And uh, it's possible because uh, our forces uh, come here very fast. In their haste, Russian soldiers left medicine, food, rubber boots. The Neil steps in front of a table full of unused bullets. He says the irony of fate. He's methodical. One at a time, he flicks the bullets into his palm. Now these bullets will kill the people who brought them here. All of the Ukrainian soldiers we speak to are full of conviction. This is a war for freedom. It's a war of Russian aggression. We drive to the outskirts of town to a Ukrainian military position. Second Lieutenant Dmitry says this war has become an artillery battle. 
Как показала практика, воевать они не умеют. The human suffering, says Second Lieutenant Dmitry, is the thing that makes this so heartbreaking. Do you think there's a chance for peace here? The peace will be after the victory, because they, you can't make any agreements with people like this, after everything they have done. The human suffering, he says, is also the thing that will make this war so hard to untangle. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Malarohan. In their forthcoming book, New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns offer new details about how Republican congressional leaders Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell privately supported removing Donald Trump from office for his role in helping foment the January 6th attack on the Capitol. McCarthy yesterday called the report, quote, totally false and wrong. And then the reporters offered up their receipts late last night by releasing audio they obtained from a January 10th phone call. It backs up their reporting and makes clear McCarthy lied. Here's the key portion of that tape. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Trump, of course, did not resign, and McCarthy quickly realigned himself as a loyalist to the former president. NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. Hi, Sue. Hey there. So it's rare to catch any politician so clearly in a lie. How is this reverberating on Capitol Hill? Well, I think what matters most for McCarthy here is what Republicans make of it. And in that sense, it hasn't made a ton of waves. Hmm. You know, privately, a lot of Republican lawmakers felt the exact same way McCarthy did in those immediate days after the attack. But McCarthy has since repeatedly and consistently proven that he's going to be loyal to former President Trump, even clearly over his own personal moral objection. So... Well, both McCarthy and McConnell were horrified by Trump's actions that day, and and in many ways they said so publicly at the time, it became pretty clear to both of them that their members did not share that horror and they wouldn't have the support to move forward with any kind of punitive actions against Trump. McCarthy famously flew to Mar-a-Lago and was photographed with Trump just weeks after the attack. McConnell flirted with voting to convict Trump in the impeachment trial, but ultimately didn't because, as they also report in their book, McConnell told a friend, quote, I didn't get to be leader by voting with five people in the conference. Now, Trump and McCarthy have had a pretty rocky relationship. McCarthy was not originally a Trump supporter back in 2016. They had a falling out immediately after January 6th, but they are right now seen as close allies. And McCarthy is on the path to become speaker if Republicans win the House in November. So do you think this tape could hurt McCarthy's chances? It seems unlikely, and here's why. You know, President Trump values loyalty to him above all else. And what this episode illuminates very brightly is that McCarthy's going to be loyal no matter what. Hmm. I mean, why would Trump not want that man to be speaker? It's not like lying to the New York Times is a disqualifying act to Donald Trump Mm -hmm. or honestly to most House Republicans. So as long as Trump wants McCarthy to be speaker, it's hard to see how these revelations change much. There's no one else angling for the job among House Republicans. And the lawmakers who would most likely be troublemakers for McCarthy are the Trump loyalists. So if it's okay by Trump, it's going to be okay by them. 
Um, you know, that being said, if Trump were to publicly pull support for McCarthy, then yes, he would have a problem on his hands. Briefly, Sue, Republicans are very well positioned in the midterms. Trump has not ruled out running again in 2024. So, should we believe can, and conclude that the events of January 6th simply did absolutely nothing to dim his party within the party? Yeah, I mean, the big picture here is next year, Congress could be led by two men who will clearly set aside any personal objections to Trump's actions because they don't have the support from within to do otherwise. McCarthy's already said he would shut down the committee investigating the January 6th attack. And McConnell's already said if Trump wins the nomination, he will support him for president again. Okay. NPR's Susan Davis, thank you. You're welcome. What do you get the monarch who has everything for her 96th birthday? Queen Elizabeth II celebrated her big day yesterday in private, but her public celebrated with a song from the Coldstream Guards at Windsor Castle. And a 41-gun salute in Hyde Park. Another gift the Queen got yesterday was her own Barbie. The Queen Elizabeth II Platinum Jubilee doll celebrates the Queen's 70 years on the throne, a record for a British monarch. She's decked out in an ivory gown and blue sash. Of course, she's wearing a crown atop her white curls and her royal medallions and ribbons. The doll's stern, regal face kind of makes it look like a pensive Helen Mirren. It costs $75. And if you're thinking about getting one, sorry, Mattel has already sold out. Yeah, we can already hear the disappointed sighs from the collectors and Anglophiles listening now. But don't lose hope. You still have time to track one down, maybe secondhand, before the Queen's four-day jubilee celebration, which begins June 2nd. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, China has enforced strict regulations on its tech platforms over the past year. But this crackdown has sparked such instability in financial markets that the government may be having second thoughts. That story is coming up. On Wall Street, down went the Dow today, and it kept falling until it lost 981 points, about two and three quarters percent. It finished its fourth straight week with a loss to close at 33,811. S&P dove about two and three quarters percent as well. It ended the day at 42.72. The Nasdaq lost two and a half percent to finish the week at 12,839. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Change is coming next week to the MBTA's Blue Line. Starting Monday, the subway line will be shut down between airport and Bowdoin stations for two weeks. Work crews will replace track and make upgrades to lighting, drainage, and equipment in the Blue Line Tunnel under Boston Harbor. Shuttle buses and ferries will replace the subway service. We have the forecast for the weekend coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Being Maholi, Portraits as Resistance, on view through May 8th. More at GardnerMuseum.org. And Gene Brooks Landscapes, dedicated to designing, constructing, and maintaining imaginative gardens for 32 years in Greater Boston. Photos at GeneBrooksLandscapes.com.
Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. A glorious Friday. Nice clear skies tonight. Some gusty winds. Lows about 40. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine, topping out at 63. Sunday clouds roll in. Temperatures pull back to about 48. 63 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Florida lawmakers have been busy this week in a special legislative session. Among other things, the legislature passed a bill revoking Walt Disney World's status as an independent special district. Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law today. The state gave Disney that status more than 50 years ago. It grants the company self-governing authority and exempts it from nearly all state regulations. Republicans in Florida decided to revoke it after Disney criticized the new law that limits discussion of LGBTQ issues in the classroom, the law that opponents describe as don't say gay. I spoke earlier today with Nick Papantonis, a reporter with WFTV in Orlando, and I asked him what the special status actually does for Disney. The way to think about a special district is like thinking about it like a city. It has the same functions almost to the T, where this is a place, is an extra layer of government that Disney has that allows it to control the functions on its own property. The district has a planning department. The district has uh, a sewer plant. It runs the fire stations. In return, instead of Disney approaching the county planning department or going to the county staff for services, Disney essentially controls the district that it's in. So it gets to ask itself for permission to do things, and it gets to direct itself, in a sense, for other things. On the flip side, the district also collects the taxes, an extra layer of taxes like your municipal taxes, that Disney, in a sense, pays itself. So if that gets undone and suddenly the surrounding counties, Osceola and Orange counties, are responsible for everything from sewer to permitting to filling potholes, what does that actually mean? What that basically means is that the revenue that this district collects goes away, and that's our big issue here. This extra layer of tax that the district has is illegal outside of the district, and the counties can't replace it. The counties are now going to be responsible for picking up all the services the district provides, so that sewer plant, those fire departments, that uh, planning department, they're going to have to do all of the work. They're also going to have to take on all of the debt that the district currently has, the municipal bonds that it's been issuing or it has issued to do the big projects like build a road. Is this a popular move? I mean, Governor Ron DeSantis has been pretty clear that it is punishment, full stop. The intention, yeah, was to punish Disney for speaking out against the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which more popularly is known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Within the counties, it's hard to get a gauge, obviously, on every single citizen's opinion. Overwhelmingly, though, this is not a popular move in the counties itself. While a lot of people would like Disney to get fewer tax breaks, for example, they understand that the district is a net benefit to the area. This just 
is services that Disney is essentially paying for that the counties don't have to provide in that area. So hearing that when the, the consequences of this, hearing that the property taxes for Orange County, for example, might have to go up 20 to 25% next year, nobody wants that. The special district isn't scheduled to fully dissolve until June of next year. Is there a chance that this gets renegotiated, that a deal gets cut before then? So everyone's looking at the two possible moves forward because we don't know how Disney's going to respond right now, and we also don't have insight into the minds of every single legislator. Uh, one of the avenues that could happen is that Disney chooses to sue the state government. The other path forward, and, and this is the one that attorneys think is the most likely scenario at this point, is that the legislator gave themselves time to get this done, right? June of 2023, that's 15 months from now. And that is after, importantly, the next legislative session, which is supposed to be starting up in January. There's a very good possibility, based on what Republicans and Democrats are saying in the, in the chambers right now, as well as all the legal experts, that Disney uses its lobbying power to come back, sit down at the table with the, with the officials, and hash out a modified agreement that maybe strips some of the powers that Disney has that it doesn't really use right now and maintains a lot of the things that the company really cares about. That's Nick Papantonis, reporter with WFTV in Orlando. Thanks for speaking with us today. No problem. Chinese tech stocks are having a rough year. The e-commerce giant JD.com, for example, is down 25%. Its competitor, Alibaba, is down 60 There are several reasons why, but one reason is firmly in the Chinese government's control. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma with our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. Ray Ma is a tech investor in China, and she has her own podcast called Tech Buzz China. If you were investing in listed companies, then you probably had a pretty crappy year, actually. <laughs> and there's still, there's still a lot of uncertainty going forward. And we wanted to know, why are these tech stocks in China having such a bad year? Ray told us about a phrase that was first used in China in the 1950s when China was led by Chairman Mao. But it has gained traction as this new buzzword in political circles in China over the past year. It's called common prosperity. Common prosperity contains with it a lot of ideas. The main goal is actually to double GDP per capita by 2035 and become what's called a middle developed country. Even though China is the world's second largest economy overall, when you divide that by its one and a half billion people, the average Chinese person is still pretty poor by American standards. And, and that said, China has grown production enormously over the last four decades. It's done that by investing heavily in manufacturing and infrastructure. But China's growth formula has been associated with massive income inequality. China is focused on trying to make sure that the next stage of development is more equal across the board. The banner Common Prosperity is a sprawling, multifaceted set of aims. And yes, reducing inequality is part of it. But even here, it's also about reasserting the role of state power. It's this big shift back towards a more state-dominated economy after decades of China opening up its markets. And one of the ways that the state has been reasserting its power is by cutting certain big Chinese companies down to size through regulation. Now, it is worth mentioning that China is not clamping down on all tech companies, just the tech which isn't aligned with its strategic goals. 
But this crackdown has really decimated a lot of publicly traded Chinese companies. And there's always the risk that this downturn could spread into the wider Chinese economy, which would have ripple effects all around the world. And that leads us to a turning point. The government may have hinted that it thinks that it's gone too far in the taming of tech platforms. Yeah, you can get a sense of how it's changing its messaging based on a comment from China's vice premier, Liu He, just last month. And he said the government will, quote, actively release policies favorable to markets, unquote. He also said that the government would better coordinate regulations that might affect capital markets. One person who is especially looking for stability is President Xi Jinping. He's widely expected to be making a case for a third term as leader later in the year. That's something that hasn't happened in a half century. And it'd be a lot easier of a sell if the financial markets in China were not in chaos. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Mild right now and for a while longer, 63 degrees in the Boston area. Cool tonight, about 39 for a low with mainly clear skies. Tomorrow, sunny, about 63 for a high and then mainly cloudy skies on Sunday, pulling back to about 48 degrees. One of the stellar acts of the meteor shower world is making an appearance again tonight. The Lyrid meteor shower peaked in the early or peaked in the early hours of today, but you should still be able to see it between 11 to Tonight and 2 a.m. again tomorrow morning, just before dawn. The shooting stars should come from the northeast at a rate of roughly 10 per hour and maybe a fireball or two as well. This is WBUR. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum. With us, them, we. Race, ethnicity, identity. Diverse perspectives by over 40 contemporary artists. Now on view. WorcesterArt.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Deb Becker, Simone Rios, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is using Earth Day to promote a series of initiatives to protect the environment. Speaking in Seattle today, Biden said steps are being taken to restore national forests that have been destroyed by wildfires. He also said the administration is working to replace lead pipes. We started replacing 100 percent, 100 percent of all the lead pipes and poison that poison our water in America. 400,000 schools and daycare centers, the kids can't turn on that water without getting worried about whether there's lead in that, in that water. 10 million homes in America. 
and here in this city and this state. Biden also signed an executive order protecting some of the nation's largest and oldest trees. The order also directs federal land managers to define and inventory mature and old-growth forests across the nation within the next year. Stocks traded sharply lower on Wall Street today, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunging 981 points by the close. NPR's Rafael Nam reports aggressive interest rate hikes and inflation have driven down shares for the third straight week. Inflation has been more stubborn than expected, staying at its highest level in 40 years. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is now saying more aggressive rate hikes could be on the table. The Fed raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point in March, and it's now widely expected to raise them by twice as much at its next meeting in early May. The Fed will likely need to continue to be aggressive in fighting inflation this year, and that's raising concern that these rate hikes could tip the economy into a recession. Rafael Nam, NPR News. Recapping stocks on Wall Street, the Dow was down 981 points at the close. The Nasdaq fell 335. The S&P 500 down 121 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins is creating a new unit of her office to combat human trafficking and civil rights crimes. Rollins says the goal is to give her assistant U.S. attorneys more resources for this enforcement work. The AUSAs and paraprofessionals in that unit will be responsible for investigating and prosecuting sex trafficking, labor trafficking, hate crimes, civil rights violation, and police excessive force claims. Rollins made the announcement today at her investiture ceremony at Boston Federal Courthouse. She's been on the job since January, but today she was formally sworn in. Former Fall River Mayor Jaisal Correa is now behind bars. Today he reported to a federal prison in Berlin, New Hampshire, to begin his six-year sentence. Correa was convicted last year of defrauding investors in his company and extorting money for marijuana businesses that wanted to operate in Fall River. The former mayor was originally to report to prison last December, but a judge granted him several delays over the winter. UMass Amherst is moving ahead with a plan to have its campus run entirely on renewable energy in 10 years. University leaders announced the goal today, Earth Day. They predict the transition will cost at least $500 million. And Cambridge-based Biogen has withdrawn its application seeking approval to sell its controversial Alzheimer's drug in Europe. The biotech company made the announcement today. European regulators have expressed concern about the drug's safety and efficacy. Biogen says it stands behind the treatment and is leaving the door open to applying again. In the U.S., Medicare and Medicaid have sharply limited their coverage of the drug, and many private insurance companies won't pay for it. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings, icaboston.org. In the forecast, a beautiful day today. Clear skies overnight tonight. Gusty winds once again. Temperatures just about 39 or 40 degrees. Tomorrow, the sunshine returns. A beautiful day tomorrow, topping out at 63. But then gray skies in for Sunday. On the cooler side as well, temperatures back in the upper 40s. In the Boston area, 63 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. 
Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. AB3121 is a bit of an unassuming title for an incredibly complex effort in California. It's the bill that created a task force to study reparations for slavery in the state. Right now, the task force is preparing the first in a series of reports. It'll look at the impact of racism on Black Americans. Lisa Holder is a task force member and civil rights attorney. So it's a report that looks at inequity in employment, in healthcare, in housing, in wealth accumulation, starting from the inception of the slave economy all the way up to the present. The report's release in June will be the next milestone for the task force. The most recent milestone has come with a lot of contention. All Black people in California should receive reparations. They were judged Let's not strip away the humanity of freedmen by making their history and culture a prop for everyone, quote unquote, African person. How are we confused on who should receive this repair? After a series of public hearings, the task force voted in March, five to four, to exclude some black residents. Only those who can trace their lineage to enslaved or freed black people in the U.S. before the end of the 19th century will be eligible for reparations. We wanted to hear how some black Californians are feeling about the plan now. My name is Taiwo Kuji Chagulia Seitu, and under the current plan, I would be eligible. My name is Driga Danelle Gibson, and I am eligible um, under the current uh, AB 3121 eligibility motion. My name is Kaylin Sabal Wilson, and under the current plan, I would be ineligible. My co-host Elsa Chang sat down with this group to talk about California's reparations plan as it stands, starting with how the history of slavery impacts each of their lives today. I can get a DNA test and trace my ancestry back on these shores, but I can't necessarily say where in Nigeria or Benin or Mali my ancestors are from. Our families were literally torn apart, and I'm doing the piecework now of trying to put that puzzle back together. But were it not for enslavement and colonization, I wouldn't have to do all that footwork. Yeah. What about you, Drika? And I do realize I'm asking an enormous question, but how do you still feel in your everyday life the legacy of enslavement? I know that I can draw a line starting from today all the way back to Reconstruction and slavery, given the inhumane treatment that we've sustained, um, that's been allowed, and in some cases amplified. Uh, we can look at the current homeownership, or the lack of Black homeownership uh, in businesses, and so forth. What about you, Kaylin? Because, you know, your family has roots in Trinidad and Belize, but you were born here in the U.S. And I'm curious, and this may be the key question in this debate about who is entitled to reparations in the state of California. Do you think that you as an individual, that you are impacted differently by the legacy of racism and slavery in this country compared to someone whose ancestors were enslaved or freed in the U.S.? Yes, 
I think that I have a very different reference point and experience. Much like Tywa was mentioning, being able to sort of trace your lineage. I can trace my family in Trinidad. I can trace my family in Belize. I can sort of get back to some of those connections that have been severed and lost by bondage and by slavery. I want to talk specifically about the criteria that the task force in California laid out. They decided that only Black Californians who are descendants of enslaved Black people or descendants of freed Black people living in the U.S. prior to the end of the 19th century, that only those Black Californians will be eligible for reparations. How does that set of criteria sit with each of you? I believe that reparations is only owed to African-Americans who descend from persons enslaved in the United States. So what do you say to the argument that all Black people in this country are suffering at some level from the layers of impacts that flowed out of slavery, regardless of whether their descendants were enslaved or freed during the 19th century? I do believe that all people who are, who are considered Black peoples in the United States have been subjugated to some type of inhumane treatment. Um, however, in terms of reparations, as defined, is a, is a very distinctive repair for a specific group that has a unique and specific history here in this country. Well, let me turn to Kaylin. I mean, listening to Drika lay out her argument, do you believe that when it comes to specifically reparations from the state of California, that there should be a distinction? among Black Californians. I agree with Drika. I think that makes sense. And looking at the specific parameters of reparations as a whole, like considering this experience, absolutely, I agree. So you feel fine as a Black Californian not being entitled to reparations from the state of California at this moment. You're, you're okay with that. I feel that I am not owed anything in this particular context. I am okay with some of us getting something in what we are owed than for none of us to get anything. Yeah. What about you, Taiwo? Do you think that this distinction the task force is drawing is a fair one? I'm going to say that within this context, it is an understandable one. If it's about trying to pinpoint who is owed what and make it a process that is formulaic, I think the primary concern with some people is that this decision should not be prohibitive for people who cannot trace their family history due to lack of resources or due to lack of information. I want to ask each of you, what would it ultimately mean to you and to your families if you were to receive reparations? This is Ty Wells. For me, it would mean an opportunity to build wealth, to leave a positive net worth for my children. My oldest daughter's a senior in high school this year to be able to actually pay for her to go to college so she doesn't have to, you know, have student loan debt like I do because my parents couldn't afford for me to go to college. Right. So it would mean a lot in terms of setting us up economically, financially, some financial stability. Kaylin? I think for me personally, it would be about the ability and the sustainability to thrive rather than to just survive. I think that ultimately because of the ways in which Black people have been left out of the wealth ladder and have been left out of the economic sector and even have been left out of the healthcare system to just be able to exist freely would, would be what it would mean for me. What about you, Drika? Reparations would be, it, it means everything to me. Reparations would mean that I would be able to not only receive and collect what my 
great, great grands and, and those before them, what they were denied and to also uh, be able to have an inheritance and have something to pass down uh, to my children thereafter. In addition to being made fully American, because, you know, given the, the gravity of wealth extraction and inhumane subjugation, reparations means living a full American life and, and living the life that my ancestors were not able to live and, and not just freely, but purely. That was Drika Donnell Gibson, Kaylin Sabal Wilson, and Taiwo Kuji Chagalia Seetu in conversation with Elsa Chang. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's Orthodox Easter this weekend, a weekend that would normally fill Ukraine with celebrations. But this year, Easter Sunday finds millions of Ukrainians displaced and seeking refuge in neighboring countries due to the Russian invasion. More than 40,000 are in Bulgaria, and NPR's Megan Collins-Sullivan spoke with a few about how the holiday will be different this year. At a small, noisy cafe in downtown Sofia, a group of moms and kids sit in chairs or on the floor, drinking coffee and warm milk. This is not where they hope to find themselves heading into Easter weekend, but they are relieved to be here. Tatiana Olifier and her daughters, 13-year-old Elizabeth and 10-year-old Alexandra, arrived in Bulgaria's capital just days ago. I wish to go back uh, for Easter because we have our tradition uh, to make it. Uh, we have this... Um, Easter bread called Pascha. Easter is one of the most important and joyous holidays in Eastern Europe. Everybody was painting eggs, uh, drawing on eggs, and uh, also we make a lot of sweets. Instead, today they are enjoying the company of others displaced from Ukraine and finding some solace in sharing their stories. These moms and kids have left husbands, dads, sons, and brothers behind. Men aged 18 to 60 have to stay to fight. Irina Darbakova escaped with her daughter and two grandchildren three weeks ago after their home in Mariupol was destroyed. She had to leave her 20-year-old son Yuli behind and has since lost contact with him. Tetiana explains. She doesn't think it's going to be a holiday for her because uh, her son is still in Mariupol, is fighting Pamela Delatofila helped organize today's gathering. She hands out little cloth bags decorated with bunnies and filled with Easter treats to all the kids. She says she's trying to offer some moments of happiness for them. Actually, we try to organize things for them to forget sometimes what the tragedy that they are living. For others, this Easter may not be filled with the usual traditions. But they're finding meaning in safety and the kindness of strangers. Uh, actually, everyone helps us because <laughs> um, yes, we're really thankful for uh, those who are helping us. That's 26-year-old Joseph Fenn. He arrived in Bulgaria from Kiev earlier this month with his friends Annette and Natasha, and Natasha's 10-year-old twin girls Alessandra and Yulia. His mom is Bulgarian, so he has a passport that allowed him to leave Ukraine. He says he feels torn, but that he thinks he can be most helpful making connections for Ukrainians in Bulgaria. My feelings are, like, mixed. 
because um, I I know I can go back and uh, and be there with other my friends because um, every day I think it's like I left them there. The friends will attend their church's online service Sunday. Joseph says they'll focus on the religious aspects of the holiday. Like meaning of this holiday changed for us because uh, uh, we survived something in our life. So we can uh, say to uh, kids and, and other people, we can give not traditions, but uh, something bigger. Megan Collins Sullivan, NPR News, Sofia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, John Stewart receives this year's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. The Elliott Hotel and Uni Restaurant in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and personalized service where guests can relax in their one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Be inspired to simply be with the works of Zanella Maholi on view through May 8th. More at GardnerMuseum.org. Red Sox start up a series with Tampa Bay Rays tonight. Mighty fine weather for us overnight tonight. Clear skies on the cool side, just about 39 degrees. The weekend gets off to a nice start. Sunshine tomorrow, light winds, highs about the mid-60s. Overcast skies, though, for Sunday may need a jacket as we get to about 48 degrees tops. The state is warning drivers of some changes on the Mass Turnpike in Boston that start tonight. The exit 138-135 ramp from the Turnpike to the Seaport and Congress Street will be reduced to one lane for about two weeks. That's so construction crews can work on a development project nearby. 63 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Bill Blumenreich presents featuring comedian Bill Burr at Fenway Park, August 21st. Tickets and information at redsox.com slash Bill Burr. The House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection will soon make public what they found. We as citizens need a story that we can understand, and we don't have that narrative yet. Congressional historian Ray Smock says the stakes are high. I think this is the single most important congressional investigation in the history of the nation. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. French voters will cast their ballots Sunday for president. Polls show the incumbent president, Emmanuel Macron, beating his rival, populist candidate Marine Le Pen, but with a slimmer margin than five years ago. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley visited a town in a working-class region of France to look at why. The northern French town of Arras was on the western front during World War I. It was also once part of the region's booming coal mining industry, 
That too is in the past. Last night, hundreds of people lined up to get into Marine Le Pen's final campaign rally before Sunday's vote. Nathalie and Franck Herblain both work in a factory nearby. They say Le Pen has the workers' best interests at heart. We're sick of Macron and his globalization, they say. The rich are getting richer, but the working class is struggling. Marine will do everything to help the working class. Le Pen has moderated her party's image, drawing thousands of new supporters. Her mainstream makeover was enhanced by the presence of a candidate even further to the right. Eric Zemmour talked anti-immigration while Le Pen stuck to bread and butter economic issues. In front of Arras's ornate town hall, I meet 67-year-old Eveline. She says Le Pen may have changed, but she's still divisive. With everything that we've been through these last five years, the pandemic and this nightmare war between Russia and Ukraine, it's Macron who's calmly guided us through, listening to scientists and economists. He's young and didn't have much experience, but he's been amazing. I didn't vote for him last time, but I'm so proud to have such a president. In Arras's cobbled medieval square, 24-year-old Marie Belmont is having a drink with her sister. She voted for far-left leader Jean-Luc Mélenchon in the first round. She says she'll hold her nose and vote for Macron in the second. We're not voting for a president so much as voting against Marine Le Pen to block her. Belmont is continuing the French tradition known as faire barrage or build a dam against the far right. The dam was most notably erected in 2002 when millions of left-wing voters crossed over to support conservative Jacques Chirac to block Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine's father. But analysts say the daughter today is nothing like her father, and the stigma of voting for Le Pen's party has diminished. The beginning of the battle was uh, the 9th of April, 1917. Adrien d'Angleterre works in the tourist office where he tells visitors about the World War I Battle of Arras. D'Angleterre is into history but says he's not very political. Uh, yeah, obviously I'm, I'm going to vote, but I still don't know who I'm going to vote for. Analysts say abstention could be high among young voters, which could help Le Pen, as could Macron's perceived arrogance that has created a deep well of resentment, especially among working-class voters. Chers compatriotes! At her rally, Le Pen called on the French to vote for her, reject Macron's vision of a globalized France, and preserve the soul of the country. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Arras, France. Nicolas Cage is not just the star of his latest movie, he's also its main character. In the comedy The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Nicolas Plitt Nicolas Cage plays an actor named Nicolas Cage. Critic Bob Mondello says he's certainly well cast. We meet a Nick Cage who's very much like the Nick Cage we know, but struggling a bit, even when he auditions. What did he say? He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Oh, man, I'm driving through the hills. I'm sorry. One more time. Bills are piling up, alimony after a recent divorce. Then, finally, his agent mentions an offer from a fan that would involve some acting. What's it about? You head to southern Spain. And you attend a wealthy gentleman's birthday party. 
I would never do that. It's a million bucks, Nick. I'll take it. The fan's name is Javi, a hero-worshipping superfan, as played by Pedro Pascal, with a screenplay he's hoping Nick will read, and plans for a whole weekend of bonding, maybe even acting out a scene or two. As much as Cage tries to preserve boundaries once he gets to southern Spain, even saying he's giving up acting, Javi is like an eager puppy. You can't quit acting! You can't! That's none of your business! Whether you like it or not, you have a gift! The way to a star's heart is through his ego, and Cage's has needed stroking, what's a star to do? Disappoint his biggest fan? We have to go now! We have to jump! They're standing in a clearing overlooking water as Nick Cage looks Javi in the eye and becomes Nicholas Cage. You're in an untenable situation. You know that, right? Javi's eyes light up. And let's get you out of here alive. With Javi close behind, he runs towards the water, and he drops a lot higher than he expected. It is sometimes said that actors contain multitudes. All the parts they've ever played, are playing, will play. This is truer of some actors than others, but this movie references a lot of the multitudes Nicolas Cage contains. You like the Nick Cage from Leaving Las Vegas? There's a bottom of a swimming pool bit. Guarding Tess? A heartwarming story. National Treasure? A race to safety. And when a couple of CIA agents who've been tailing Javi's spot Cage, they run through a half dozen more. He was so good in The Rock! about gone in 60 seconds. Have you seen Croods 2? No, I'm 44 years old. Why would I see Croods 2? I've seen Face Off and Con Air. This doesn't remotely rise to the level of homage, but it'll be fun for fans. Director Tom Gormican and his co-screenwriter Kevin Effen mostly settle for quick nods in the general direction of Cage's previous films. Their story's so busy chasing its own tail that trying to do more than name-check epics like Army of One and Ghost Rider would likely be the kiss of death. That said, it takes unbearable weight of massive talent a good hour and some dropped acid before it builds up a comic head of steam, the LSD fueling a paranoid escape over a wall Grab my hand! Grab it! When nobody's actually chasing them. Theirs is a bromance marked by total commitment So you let go! You let go! Just 24 hours after they've met, star and fan united in devotion to Nick Cage and the Hollywoodness of it all. Goodbye, Nicholas Cage. Oh, I'll never forget you, man. Now you get the hell out of here. You go! Turns out we could have just walked around. Yeah, I guess so. Whatever. There's not a lot in the unbearable weight of massive talent for those hoping for something as meta as that title, where being John Malkovich used its real-life star not just for laughs, but for a weirdly profound examination of consciousness. No one associated with this film is interested in examining much of anything. They mean their movie to be just a goof. I'm Nick It's memory gone in 60 seconds once the lights come up. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Workday, 
an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast, a lovely afternoon and evening. Then for tonight, clear skies, still some gusty winds around. Should be about 39 or 40 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine topping out at 63 degrees. And then for Sunday, mainly overcast skies. Temperatures pulled back to just about 48. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. On this Earth Day, President Biden reaffirms his ambitious climate change goals and announces new protections for old-growth forests. Our story is coming up on this Friday, April 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, it's been nearly two months since the U.S. and its allies introduced unprecedented international sanctions against Russia in response to the invasion. For the Russian economy, the worst is yet to come. And we continue the story of a man in Gaza seeking life-saving heart surgery in the West Bank. Some Israelis volunteer to drive Palestinians to medical appointments, which are often far away. It's important for me that the people in Gaza will know that there are people like me in Israel. We'll wrap up our series this hour. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian officials say satellite imagery shows multiple mass graves just outside the southern city of Mariupol. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, city officials say thousands could be buried there. The mayor of Mariupol says there are multiple trenches, which he said the Russians are using as graves to try to cover up war crimes. The images also provide a glimpse of the widespread destruction and suffering in and around the city. Ukrainian officials say that at least 20,000 people have been killed in Mariupol since the start of the invasion. And tens of thousands of civilians remain trapped inside the city and unable to flee. NPR's Franco Ordonez. As Ukraine braces for sustained Russian attacks in the east, meanwhile, a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers is calling on the Biden administration to ramp up medical support. Here's NPR's Amy Held. 17 members of Congress from both parties say Ukraine's health care system is, in their words, on the verge of failure. They're asking the Pentagon and the State Department to supply armored ambulances, set up field hospitals at the Polish border, and scale up a U.S. military hospital in Germany. The White House has warned of Russia waging a protracted war of attrition in Ukraine, including targeting civilians and the hospitals that treat them. Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat from Colorado who recently returned from the region, tells the AP more combat and civilian casualties are coming and the U.S. must step up to help. Amy Held, NPR News. 
A group representing 130 utilities and related organizations nationwide is calling for a federal court review of new steps by the Biden administration to address the toxic legacy of coal ash. Amy Green of member station WMFE in Orlando has that story. The Utility Solid Waste Activities Group filed the petition in the District of Columbia against the EPA earlier this month, saying the agency issued the new rules without any notice. Environmental groups say the EPA's move to implement better cleanup procedures in January represented the first time the agency had enforced federal regulations on coal ash since they were approved in 2015. Coal ash is the waste that remains after coal is burned for electricity. It contains toxic substances linked with cancer and is a leading source of water contamination in the country. Nonprofit environmental law organization Earth Justice said the rules could affect more than 200 coal plants nationwide. For NPR News, I'm Amy Green in Orlando. Okay. Can there ever be too much of a good thing in terms of the job market? Well, apparently Federal Reserve Board Chairman Jerome Powell thinks that is the case right now. Powell describing the job market as extremely historically tight and unsustainably hot. That and concerns about rising interest rates worried Wall Street at weeks, and the Dow suffered its biggest single-day loss of the year, down nearly 1,000 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two children from Ukraine have been flown to a Boston hospital. The 17-month-old and a 2-year-old are being treated for burns at Shriners Children's Boston. They were brought there because they could not get proper medical care in Ukraine because of the war. WBUR's Dave Fanef has more. Household accidents with boiling water left the children with burns on 40 to 70 percent of their bodies. It took about three weeks for them to travel from Ukraine to Boston, first over land into Poland and then by flight to Boston. Dr. Robert Sheridan, director of the burn unit at Shriners, says treatment has already begun. They had their first surgeries uh, yesterday and they'll both be going back again next week. That process will continue until their wounds are all closed, and then we'll get more active with rehab and, and you know, getting them up and getting them strong again. Sheridan says if all goes very well, it will be four to six weeks before they're up and about. But 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. Environmental advocates want the operator of New England's power grid to transition more quickly to clean energy sources. This week, a coalition of 11 organizations asked federal regulators to reject grid operator ISO New England's request to extend a pricing rule for two more years. That rule is designed to prevent subsidized green energy from blocking other sources of energy, such as fossil fuels. Environmental advocates say keeping the rule in place will delay the transition to solar and wind energy. The grid operator says it wants to protect the reliability of the power system. The Bristol County DA is reopening the case. Every case of unidentified bodies and skeletal remains discovered in that county over the past 40 years. D.A. Thomas Quinn announced the effort today. He says methods used decades ago were not able to produce identification, but he says new technology, including genealogical DNA testing, might be successful. Investigators will look at 12 cases. Some of them were homicides. Red Sox are on the road in St. Petersburg to start a three-game series against Tampa Bay. And in the forecast, beautiful tonight, clear skies, gusty winds down about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine topping out at 63. Then for Sunday, overcast, temperatures pulling back to about 48 degrees. 63 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com slash delivering.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Things are quiet now at one of Jerusalem's holiest sites for both Jews and Muslims. But earlier today, the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, known to Jews as the Temple Mount, was the scene of violence between Palestinians and Israeli riot police. It's a scene that's all too familiar. My colleague Daniel Estrin, who's been co-hosting All Things Considered this week, covers the ongoing violence between Palestinians and Israelis day in and day out. And this week, he's been bringing us a story that takes us behind the headlines and shows us how this simmering conflict shapes everyday life, even when there is no violence. And Daniel, this story you've been telling us takes place in Gaza, which is home to two million Palestinians. Yeah. Ari, in Gaza, it is just so many aspects of life, routine life, that are affected by the ongoing conflict, including the healthcare system. And it's all the way down to the story of one father named Yusuf al-Kurd and his quest to get heart bypass surgery that could save his life. And you've reported this week on why his case is too complicated for Gaza's health system, which has been degraded by war and a blockade by Israel and Egypt since Israel's enemy Hamas took over 15 years ago. Yeah, they can't do his surgery in Gaza, and his condition is getting worse. He's been waiting for more than two months, and finally he gets his Israeli security clearance to leave Gaza and to go to a Palestinian hospital in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. So today, we have the final chapter of our story. I travel with him on his journey from Gaza through Israel to the West Bank hospital. The Erez Crossing is one of the world's most heavily fortified border crossings. It's Israel's one civilian crossing with Gaza. Hamas, committed to armed conflict with Israel, is contained on the other side. So are two million Palestinian civilians. Israel's policy is to keep the Palestinian territories divided, to seal Gaza off from the West Bank. I'm on the Israel side of this crossing, waiting for 70-year-old Yusuf Al-Kurd, who's waited for months for this moment. A Palestinian lawyer pleaded with Israeli authorities to give him security clearance to get heart surgery. And finally, he's allowed to cross with his wife, Faiza. Uh, I'm weak, he says. At 5.30 a.m., he said goodbye to his children and left home, waited hours at the Hamas checkpoint leaving Gaza. Then at the Israeli crossing, he had to raise his arms in a full-body scanner, and he crumpled to the floor. Israeli attendants rushed him a wheelchair. No one told his family they could arrange an ambulance. But there is a driver here, and he's Israeli. He volunteers with a peace group called Road to Recovery. They're Israelis who drive Palestinian patients to their medical appointments. This driver is named Arnon Avni. He's nearly 70 years old. He's a graphic designer and a political cartoonist. Okay, let's get them in. And we are ready to go. Should we pull the car, uh, the seat up a little bit? Okay. Oh. Yusuf Al-Kurd is in pain. The Israeli volunteer driver puts the destination in his navigation app, a checkpoint in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Do you speak any Arabic, Arnon? No, a few words. Not really speaking. Do you speak English? Half, half. And Yusuf? You speak English? Deutsch. Deutsch? Deutsch. Oh. He studied to be an audio engineer in Germany decades ago. He and Avni don't share a language, but they do have some things in common. They're about the same age, and Avni's father died of a heart attack. 
Oh, he's complaining about his chest. That's I can't help. The pain is severe, he says. <laughs> Kurd's wife Faiza is in Israel for the first time in her life. She's 58. She says it's another world. It's clean, it's wide, it's open. It's not everyone is squished together like in Jabalia refugee camp where she lives. I see the eyes of all of my passengers, all my travelers. They, all of them feel the same. She asks, what's that bridge? She's never seen an overpass before. <laughs> Her husband is one of thousands each year who have to reschedule their surgery and treatments over and over until Israel grants them a security clearance to leave Gaza for the hospital. Advocates have raised this issue for years, and volunteers like this Israeli driver try to help. She said, bless you, it's a humanitarian action, what you're doing. I guess uh, it's important for me that the people in Gaza will know that there are people like me in Israel. Avni lives right next to Gaza. Mortar shells landed outside his home last year. And five decades ago, a Palestinian from Gaza planted explosives in their kibbutz, and his own brother died. Avni drives Gaza patients to the hospital to try to make things better. Some people call me a traitor. A traitor. We are in minority. In minority. But I believe that we do the, the right thing for Israel. An Israeli road sign warns Israelis not to enter the Palestinian territory, so Avni can't take them all the way to the hospital. We drop them off just on the other side of the checkpoint. Yeah, the speed bumps at the crossing are a little hurting him. Yes, yes, he's suffering. We flag down a Palestinian driver and then help Kurd get out of the Israeli driver's car and into the Palestinian van. We say our goodbyes before they drive off to the hospital in the West Bank city of Hebron. Tell them I wish them all the best. She's happy to meet you and she wishes you all the best. But this moment of hope quickly fades. Kurd doesn't end up getting the surgery he's been waiting for. Hours after he arrives in the hospital, he has multiple system failure. Two days later, his son Ibrahim in Gaza gets a phone call from the hospital. Ibrahim, how are you? The doctor says. Oh God, the son replies. I'm with your mother now, the doctor says. Your father, may he rest in peace. He played this phone call for me when we were visiting the family in December, a few weeks after the funeral. For the first time, I see Faiza cry. I'm so sorry. I turned to her son. I'm so sorry about your father. I was so hopeful that he would get the, the treatment he needed and that this would be a happy ending. I was just like you, Daniel. 
I was hoping for the happy ending. As we gather our belongings to leave, his 24-year-old son Raji, who's been silent nearly the whole time, speaks. I just want to ask you, put yourself in my shoes. Would you like to face those circumstances? Would you like to see one of you beloved facing those circumstances? And since we reported this story, there have been more patients who have died going through the same ordeal as his father. Reporting there from my co-host, Daniel Estrin. Daniel, this is such a tragic case. Could anything have been done to get him out of Gaza sooner and save him? I asked health experts about that, and no one can really say for sure. There were a lot of factors. Kurd had diabetes. He was a smoker. He went a year without getting the surgery his doctor had ordered. And then the medical system in Gaza is poor. There was very little patient follow-up when his condition got worse. His son thinks it's the Palestinian doctor's fault, that the, the doctor should have marked the case as urgent, and then Israel would have let him in immediately. But when I asked the World Health Organization about that, they said even some urgent cases get delayed and denied by Israel. What we do know, Ari, is that in general, these kinds of delays can be deadly. The WHO studied Gaza cancer patients and found that they have died at a higher rate when their Israeli permits were delayed or denied. This system clearly fails a lot of patients. What can be done to fix it? Well, the World Health Organization says Israel can do a lot. Israel does let in thousands of Palestinian patients every year, but the WHO says the permit process can be sped up. The criteria can be made clearer. And it says Israel should end its restrictions, which Israel says it needs for security, on importing some medical equipment into Gaza. The WHO also says the Palestinian Authority can also help. It can get more medical supplies into Gaza. And in my own reporting, Ari, I heard accusations of corruption in how Palestinian officials select patients for travel. So there are very, very specific things that can be fixed. But the WHO has been documenting these problems for years. Why hasn't the system changed? Well, each side blames the other. Uh, You know, if only Israel would end the blockade of Gaza, or if only Hamas would stop attacking Israel and cede control, then it wouldn't be this way. But you see, the system is just resistant to change. What I learned following this one man's story is that on a person-to-person level, you can bend the rules. You know, Palestinian advocates can send frantic WhatsApp messages to Israeli border authorities. They send photos of sick patients to Israelis and and get their sympathy. And Israeli advocates even petition their own courts and manage to get patients through. So it's easier to win an exception to the rule than to change the rule. Really, Ari, it's just one way to summarize the entire dynamic between Israelis and Palestinians. Daniel Estran, thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Ari. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, President Biden signs an executive order to protect old-growth forests on federal lands. In business news, a Boston-based biotech company has formed a new partnership to try to develop more environmentally friendly fertilizers and weed killers. Ginkgo Bioworks said today it's teaming up with Bayer to develop sustainable solutions to the needs of farmers and the agriculture industry. Numbers from Wall Street are coming up. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Backbay Life Science Advisors, strategy consulting and investment banking services for global life science companies. BBLSA.com. Down went the Dow today, and it kept falling until it lost 981 points, about two and three quarters percent. It finished its fourth straight week with a loss to close at 33,811. S&P dove about two and three quarters percent as well. It ended the day at 42.72. The Nasdaq lost two and a half percent to finish the week at 12,839. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6:30. It's 5:20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fly Homes, empowering homeowners to put the proceeds from the sale of their current home toward the down payment on their next one before selling. Learn more at flyhomes.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Clear and chilly tonight, down around 40 degrees. The weekend's looking dry. Sunshine tomorrow, lows in the low to mid-60s. Then Sunday, clouds roll in. Temperatures pulling back to about 48. 63 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Lyme probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. To mark Earth Day, President Biden touted his past actions on climate change and announced some new ones. Here he is speaking in Seattle earlier today. We're going to start the process where every vehicle in the United States military, every vehicle is going to be climate friendly. No, I mean it. Biden also signed an executive order aimed at protecting old growth forests. We're joined by NPR's Laura Benshoff to discuss. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ari. When Biden first came to office, he promised to put the U.S. on a path to cut its carbon emissions in half before the end of the decade. How's that pledge going? Well, he did not get his signature climate change legislation passed. The White House did get some new climate spending in an infrastructure bill that passed last year. And Biden has been talking a lot about those elements, things like money for electric vehicle charging and energy conservation in people's homes. And federal agencies have moved to do things like limit methane emissions, which is a very um, bad greenhouse gas. It traps a lot of uh, heat in the atmosphere to set standards for building materials and to approve the nation's largest offshore wind farm. And so by taking these actions and the ones that Biden took today, he's trying to move the ball forward using the powers of his office with the hopes of eventually getting more climate legislation to his desk. All right, let's talk about the executive order he signed today to protect trees. What does it do exactly? It directs the Department of the Interior and the Department of Agriculture to define and inventory old growth forests and then using that information, make a plan and serve them. So bigger, older trees are important because they take carbon from the atmosphere throughout their life and they store it in their trunks and limbs and bark. 
and it stays there for decades. Each forest and or every year, forests and wood products in the U.S. offset more than 10% of greenhouse gas emissions here. You said this order would define old growth forests. Is there no definition? That's right. You know, activists and the timber industry and scientists use this term, which seems straightforward, in different ways. And that causes conflict at the local level when older trees are designated for removal. I talked to Steve Pettery with the environmental group Oregon Wild, and he gave an example of how his group got into a fight with the U.S. Forest Service earlier this year over some ponderosa pines. The Forest Service tried to essentially redefine what old growth is, that, you know, these aren't really old growth. They're only 125 years old. They're not 200 years old. You know, what we've seen over the years is those sort of semantic games. So when you have these different interests at play, a definition is a good first step to clearing up how to act. How have people been reacting to these announcements? Environmental groups praise the move. You know, they like that it lays out measures to protect what are called mature trees. So not as old as old growth, but basically creating a pipeline for more big trees in the future that can store carbon and suck it out of the atmosphere. Garrett Rose is with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and he told me why he supports what the president's doing. He's setting the U.S. on a course to take the lead in making trees part of the climate solution. You know, he's recognizing the importance of mature and old-growth forests in fighting the climate crisis, and he's committing the federal government to protect them. You know, in addition, the order has language mandating the State Department to work to keep products that are the result of illegal deforestation overseas from being sold in the U.S. These are often goods like leather or palm oil. So the hope is to set a global example, right? The U.S. can't tell Brazil, by way of example, not to log forests if it's not taking steps to preserve them on its own. NPR's Laura Benshoff, thank you. Thank you. Saturday Night Live alum Bill Hader returns to TV on Sunday. He stars in the third season of his hit HBO comedy, Barry. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says the new season takes Hader's character to places fans might not be ready to go. It may sound odd to say this about a character like Bill Hader's Barry Berkman, a third-rate hitman who turned his life around when he followed a potential victim into an acting class. But the third season of HBO's Barry presents a far darker vision of him than fans have seen before. As the season opens, Barry is lost emotionally. He can't get work as a hitman or an actor. He's having bloody visions, and he turns to a man he once nearly framed for murder, Chechen gangster Noho Hank, played by Anthony Carrigan. You framed me using pin I gave you for being great dude. And now you come here asking me for a job? I don't know what to do, man. I'm in a bad spot. I'm like, I'm kind of losing my mind, man. And I need help. I need a purpose. Hank. Forgiveness is something that has to be earned. It's like that line in Shawshank Redemption. Get rich or die trying. It's been almost three years since new episodes of Barry hit HBO. Fans may not remember, the second season ended with Barry's acting teacher, Gene Cousineau, learning a devastating fact. Barry killed Cousineau's girlfriend, a police detective, close to uncovering his life as a hitman. Riddled by guilt, Barry decides his purpose will be to get acting work for Cousineau, played with a clueless self-absorption by Henry Winkler. But that may be tough, given his teacher's reputation as a terrible person, which Barry learns when asking two producers to give him a part. I need you to cast my acting teacher. 
there's a process here. I'm, His name is Gene Cousineau. Gene Cousineau? That's your acting teacher? That's the guy that brought the loaded gun to the Full House audition. Yeah, when Allison didn't cast him on Family Ties, he called her a donkey witch. Everybody deserves a second chance. That's not how it works. This is a theme that Barry has continually danced around. Is redemption possible for someone who spent a lifetime doing terrible things? We've already seen Barry kill an old friend and a building full of Chechen and Bolivian gangsters. But there's still something more unpredictable and brutal about him this time around. Now he's threatening the show's most important characters, including Barry's girlfriend Sally, played by Sarah Goldberg, who hesitates to hire Cousineau for a streaming show she's producing. But we threw his name out for a part and casting said no. I think the direct quote was, life's too short. I'm worried about him. So am I. We're saying the same thing. We are not saying the same thing! We are not saying the same thing! Barry also threatens Cousineau. The assassin is torn between guilt over what he's done and the impulse to kill him. You did a horrible thing, but I see your pain. Not only did I teach you to be a good actor, I taught you to be a good human being. And this is how you repay me? By killing me? I love you, Mr. Cousineau. Hayter and his producers are clearly pushing the envelope, testing whether audiences will stay connected to Barry as he grows more dangerous and unstable. There are other comedic touches here. As Sally makes her show, we see clever jokes about the vapid nature of streaming TV executives and Hollywood entertainment reporters. But the core of the story comes down to two questions. How far will Barry go to keep his secret? And can he keep his humanity and the show's audience while he does it? I'm Eric Deggins. In Odessa, Ukraine, the daily soundtrack features a lot of air raid sirens and explosions. It's a scary time, but the owners and artists of the Perone No. 7 Jazz Club and Theater are fighting back with live music and performances. We'll take you there tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition. Listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear, windy, cool tonight, about 39 for a low. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, back in the low to mid-60s. Tomorrow's the better outdoor day if you like sunshine. Sunday should be overcast and cooler. May not even make it to 50 degrees on Sunday. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Wednesday, April 27th for a discussion with the Massachusetts gubernatorial candidates on energy and environmental issues. Free tickets are available at WBUR.org slash events. Red Sox start up a series with Tampa Bay Rays tonight. Game time in Florida is 710. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by immersive Frida Kahlo, a multimedia experience of her life, love, and art, now at the Lighthouse Art Space at Saunders Castle. Tickets at immersive-frida.com. And Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Some people say I'm a tough interviewer. I think I just ask the questions that an informed person, you, deserves answers to. And if my guest dodges them or changes the subject, then yeah, all right, I push them a little. You can help me get your questions answered every afternoon by donating your old car to this station. We'll turn it into more, all things considered. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says the U.S. and its allies are rushing to send military assistance to Ukraine as Russian forces step up their offensive in the eastern part of the country. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says top defense officials are closely monitoring the next phase of the conflict and making sure the Ukrainian military is prepared. What we're focused on is giving them the tools that they need to to defend themselves and to uh, and to defeat Russia's aggression. And that is done in a iterative conversation with them, which we have literally every day. President Biden on Thursday announced an additional $800 million in new military assistance for Ukraine. Firefighters battling a massive wildfire in northern Arizona say they've now contained about 3 percent of the 21,000-acre blaze. Ryan Heinches from member station KNAU reports a storm front is bringing rain to the area along with continued strong winds. Firefighters have made progress battling the tunnel fire northeast of Flagstaff. Crews have used helicopters to douse hot spots near homes and have dug fire lines in many key areas. Coconino County Sheriff's officials have confirmed 30 residences have burned. More than 2,000 people remain under evacuation orders and hundreds of homes are threatened. The wildfire has burned across all of Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument, but all staff and culturally important items are reported safe. A storm front is bringing much-needed moisture to the area, which could help with firefighting, but officials are concerned erratic winds could also complicate containment efforts. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. Stocks closed sharply lower today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 981 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston has unveiled a 26-point plan to help residents cope with hotter summers associated with climate change. City leaders unveiled a strategy today at an Earth Day event on the Greenway. Mayor Michelle Wu says the plan provides extra resources to neighborhoods that are hotter because they have fewer trees and parks. Heat threatens the health and well-being of our residents, of our infrastructure, And our environmental justice communities, like right here in Chinatown, are especially vulnerable. The city will create a task force to lead Boston's response to extreme heat as part of the new effort. Boston will also distribute hoses and tents to outdoor summer programs and launch a design challenge to create bus stops that stay cooler. A Western Massachusetts college is among at least a dozen in the U.S. to reinstate campus mask mandates because of rising COVID cases. Williams College in Williamstown put a mask rule in place for classes last week. That change came one week after the school gave professors the option to have mask-free classes. The percentage of positive COVID tests on the Williams campus has risen from near zero in early March to 2.4 percent now. A fundraiser that honors one of the women who was killed in the Boston Marathon bombings returns this weekend after a pandemic hiatus. The Crystal Campbell Memorial Softball Tournament in Medford is named for the former Medford High softball player. Four local high school teams will compete. Danielle DeRusso is the parent of a player. She says people are ready to give. We got an overwhelming amount of community support. We have over 30 sponsors, 22 raffle baskets value between 50 and $500. We just kind of went big because we weren't able to have it for two years. 
Money raised goes toward the Crystal Campbell Scholarship Fund, which supports young women pursuing careers in business. Massachusetts is a step closer to having an official state dinosaur. Framingham State Representative Jack Lewis launched the effort to name one. He was inspired by one of the kids to do it, and the project grew when teachers found that it was fun for students and taught them about the democratic process at the same time. Lewis asked students to vote from two dinosaurs that were known to inhabit the state. While I hoped maybe 500 would vote, within days it was clear that thousands and thousands were interested in the poll. And ultimately, by the time the voting ended, 36,000 people had voted, and the Podokasaurus holiokensis was our winner. Lewis says the winner was a fast runner, a 90-pound, 6-foot-long lizard-like creature. Both the House and Senate have given preliminary approval. One more vote in each chamber is needed before it goes to the governor. It's 535. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. And TD Garden, tenor Andrea Bocelli with songs from his album Believe, plus crossover hits and love songs, December 10th. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. Mighty fine weather this evening and overnight tonight as well. Clear skies, lows about 39 tonight, still pretty windy. Then for the weekend, sunshine tomorrow, light winds, highs right up in the mid-60s. Overcast skies for Sunday may need a jacket as we get to about 48 degrees tops. 63 degrees still in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. France has a choice this weekend, Macron or Le Pen. Polls favor President Emmanuel Macron to win a second term on Sunday. But the gap is much closer than five years ago when he defeated Marine Le Pen. This time around, the right-wing populist has rebranded and she has won a lot of support. So what does that mean for France? We're going to talk about that with Sylvie Kaufmann. She's editorial director at the French newspaper Le Monde. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we know Marine Le Pen comes from a far right wing family. She has supposedly moderated her politics. What is her vision for France? What would she do if she became president? That's a very good question because she didn't put forward immediately this time in this campaign a very clear a vision of how she sees the future of France. And so um, towards the, the these last few days since the first round, really, you know, people had a closer look at her program. And also Emmanuel Macron, I think, did a good job of pointing out you know, what were the misleading features of her of her campaign. And so when you look closely, you can see that, for instance, what she advocates is the equivalent of leaving the European Union because wow. she, yes, I mean, not, you know, we call it a, a Frexit in disguise, right? Wow. Is her position truly a surprise for her supporters? I mean, why has she won so many new supporters this time around? 
it, she did attract more votes this time. That's a fact. And I don't think it's because of her positions on Europe. I think it's more because of her, her main focus this time was the cost of living. Because it is true that we also have an inflation problem. And so she has been very effective at telling people, if you elect me president, you will have subsidies, you will have, you know, I will cut the price of gas, you know, all these kind of promises. So even if she is not elected, her rise in popularity mm-hmm. in this campaign says something, right? I mean, first of all, does yes. it reflect trends elsewhere in Europe in the rise uh, of populism, nationalism? In the U.S. too? Well, it's yes, we've, we've been having those trends in various countries, but there's not only Marine Le Pen in the populist trend in France. There is a third politician, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who we might compare to Bernie Sanders, if you want, and he got almost as many votes as Marine Le Pen. She got 23% of the vote and he got 22% of the vote. And he's a left-wing politician. So we have two important parties and politicians now in our political landscape, which are populist parties, one on the left and one on the far right. Hmm. And so between those, you have uh, Emmanuel Macron, and he's now the only political force in the center because the mainstream traditional parties on the center have totally collapsed. So our, our political system is really, it's a field of ruins. Sylvie Kaufman, Editorial Director at Le Monde. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. It's been nearly two months since Russia, since Russia launched what the Kremlin calls its special military operation in Ukraine. And it's been nearly two months since the U.S. and its allies responded with unprecedented sanctions. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has been tracking their impact and finds the worst is still to come. In a small Moscow antique shop, owner Sergei holds up an unexpected piece of the global economy. Japanese, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's 1982 album Thriller on Japanese vinyl. Perfect condition. It's not an easy thing to come by in Moscow in normal times, but Sergei, who declined to give his last name out of fear of the authorities, says soon it may be impossible because overseas suppliers are refusing to do business with him because of where he's from. Yes, I'm from Russia. But what have I personally done against another country? We don't make the decisions. Why should we suffer for someone else's ambitions? In the weeks since President Vladimir Putin launched his so-called special military operation in Ukraine, the Russian leader has repeatedly painted the mission as a necessary battle to demilitarize Ukraine and protect the Russian homeland. But as Western sanctions have piled on, Putin has also sought to assure a nervous public that Russia's economy can not only survive, but thrive amid whatever comes next. We can already say with certainty that the politics of sanctions against Russia have failed, said Putin in a televised address to his cabinet this week. The Russian leader went on to argue Western governments had harmed their own economies while spurring on Russia's economic development. The main thing is they just want to create a picture that everything is normal. And if you talk about uh, propaganda, it's working. But reality, not. That's economist Maxim Mironov. He says Putin and his government have tried to push a rosy narrative that sanctions are a gift to Russia's domestic producers and that Russia can redirect its trade towards rising powers like China. But there's a catch, says Mironov. It's going to destroy the economy completely. 
in terms of uh, how it was. That's starting with an exodus of major global companies, McDonald's, Starbucks, Ikea, and others. There's also the quirks of life under sanctions, like a run on sugar or the soaring cost of office copy paper. But the national currency, the ruble, rebounded to its original value after an early collapse thanks to moves by the central bank, produce and goods are still on supermarket shelves, and even credit cards and cash machines still work inside the country. If that sounds more disruptive than crushing, analysts say that's because it's merely pain delayed. Sanctions don't kick in immediately, says Natalia Zuborevich, an expert on Russia's regional economy with Moscow State University. People have been promised that if they wait two months, things will go back to normal. They don't yet understand. This crisis is here to stay. Zuborevich warns Russia will soon find itself felled by a feature of most modern economies. It doesn't produce much on its own. Soon, she says, major industries from auto and aviation to oil and gas will find their missing key imported parts that will stop production and jobs in their tracks. For the economy and the Russian people, it's now simply about survival. You can forget about the word growth and development altogether. Some in Russia's government acknowledge the harder road ahead. In a speech before lawmakers this week, Russia's central bank chief Elvira Nabulina warned that what had been until now a crisis in the markets would soon be felt throughout the economy. Russia had no choice, said Nabulina, but to embrace what she called a structural perestroika, a full restructuring of the economy and a new way of doing everything. With a drag on his cigarette, Asatur Andreev, the owner of a small supermarket, says he's seen some version of this before. Having lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union, the free-for-all capitalism of the early 90s, and the sanctions of the Putin era, he's used to starting over. In fact, he spent his whole morning trying to find new suppliers for goods in his shop. The politicians make decisions, and then they boomerang back on us, he says. But amid a lifetime of crises, he's learned one key lesson. The survivors are the ones who put their heads down and keep doing the work. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. There's a national shortage of teachers, particularly in special education, and it's forcing states to lower their standards for who can teach students with disabilities. That story on our daily podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We've all been there. The dreaded call to a customer service line. Please hold while your call is being transferred. Can I please just speak to a live human being? Well, there are ways to get what you want. In this encore, Megan Kane of NPR's Life Kit explains a game plan. Chances are, if you're calling a customer service line, you're dealing with a problem. I know it's tempting to come in hot and just really lay into the customer service representative, but just remember... Behind every rule, there's a person who has to apply that rule. And that person often has some leeway, and they're only going to change things if you can reach them. That's Craig DeSantos. He's a consultant who specializes in negotiation, which makes him pretty incredible at dealing with customer service. He's done seemingly impossible tasks like successfully returning three new iPads after the return period and negotiating a $16,000 medical bill to $0. But he didn't do any of this by yelling or demanding to speak to the manager. It's tempting to think of these as transactions, but 
there's a real human there. And if you treat them as a transactional being, then they will also treat you that way. A big tip from DeSantos, make the customer service representative your ally. You want to signal to the rep you're separating them from the problem. What I'll tell them is like, look, I know that you didn't have anything to do with this. I know you're trying to help me, but I want to tell you what happened. Let's say you ordered some sneakers. The company says they were delivered weeks ago, but you haven't seen them arrive yet. A total hypothetical here. Instead of saying, hey, jerk, you need to fix this. Your company shouldn't be losing sneakers. This is unacceptable. Take a deep breath. Just tell them, look, I'm really frustrated. I just want to tell you what's been my experience so far and separate that out. I think that is one way to like bring reality into the conversation without making it about them. Again, separating the person from the problem. So it's more like, I know the tracking information for these shoes say they've been delivered, but I've already checked with my neighbors if they picked it up by mistake and no one has. And I'm just confused as to why they're still missing. It should go without saying, but here's your reminder to be kind, use the representative's name, and just be patient. Another easy way to get someone on your side during a customer service interaction, ask them for advice. What would you do in my situation? Or I'll just state the situation. Like, you know, I woke up today and I was just not expecting to get a bill for $145. Like, I don't know what to do. Silence. You know, let them contemplate that situation and then see what they say. And oftentimes they'll be like, yeah, that would be crappy. If I woke up in the morning and had a $145 bill, I would not be happy either. The key to getting good customer service is preemptively de-escalating the situation. Dos Santos does this with what he calls caretaking statements. It's essentially showing your appreciation. I appreciate you like being patient with me as we figure this thing out. Or say, Thank you so much for sticking with me on this. Or I've dealt with a few people today on this issue, and you've been so quick to sort this out. You can always insert one of these little, what I call caretaking statements, to reduce the tension, but you're not releasing the request. All of this, making the customer service representative your ally, separating the person from the problem, showing your appreciation, helps set policies and rules aside so you can solve the problem with another human. Now you're talking about something that actually impacts people emotionally. And when you need to move somebody emotionally, then you can move what their decisions are. So much better than just asking for the manager. For NPR News, I'm Megan Kane. For more Life Kit, go to npr.org slash lifekit. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the musical that made a star out of 21-year-old Barbara Streisand is returning to Broadway for the first time, now starring a new funny girl. Jeff London's review is coming up. Mild now and for a while longer, holding steady at 63. Tonight should be clear, windy, down around 39 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and breezy, back in the low to mid-60s. And then for Sunday, should be gray and cooler, may not even make it to 50 degrees on Sunday. Again, 63 degrees now in Boston. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Radcliffe Institute, animated by a legacy of promoting inclusion and a commitment to expanding human understanding. Join Ruth Simmons, Ibram X. Kendi, and others to explore legacies of slavery and the path to repair April 29th. Register at radcliffe.harvard.edu events. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. People experiencing homelessness in Tennessee could soon face prison time for sleeping outside. As Samantha Max of member station WPLN reports, a bill that is close to becoming law adds serious criminal charges for camping on state and private property. Rebecca Lowe wants her park back. She lives near Brookmead Park in West Nashville, where many people without shelter have made the wooded space their home. At a Senate committee meeting this month, she shared photos of tents and garbage and urged lawmakers to pass a bill to outlaw these encampments. They've literally taken over our park for their exclusive use and kept us from enjoying it for years. Years I will never get back. The measure updates a 2012 law passed during the Occupy Wall Street movement. Back then, Tennessee made it a misdemeanor to camp on state property. In 2020, legislators stiffened the penalties. That's when protesters camped outside the state house for two months straight to protest racism after George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis. Now, the state could strengthen the law once again. Staying on the property and destroying it and, and having other things go on is simply not an option. Eddie Ferris is the president of the Tennessee Sheriff's Association. A local mayor in his county started pushing the issue last year. Ferris says the number of houseless people in the community has grown recently and residents have been complaining. The sheriff says he doesn't want to arrest people, just to have an opportunity to help them. It's unclear exactly how. The law would make it a misdemeanor to camp on an interstate exit or under a bridge. It would be a felony to camp on public property. That means up to six years in prison and a $3,000 fine. A felony is a very, very serious offense. India Pungarcher with the advocacy group Open Table Nashville says this measure would only make it harder for people to get jobs and housing if they're arrested. At last count, more than 7,200 Tennesseans had no home, and more than a third of them were unsheltered. If we want to end or address homelessness in our state, we can't keep pushing people around. People have to have a place to exist. And this law does absolutely nothing to address homelessness. Governor Bill Lee expressed some hesitation about the 2020 measure that increased penalties for camping a couple years ago. But he signed it into law anyway. He hasn't said if he supports the latest bill. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in Nashville. Funny Girl debuted on Broadway nearly 60 years ago, making a star out of a young Barbara Streisand. On Sunday, the show, a fictionalized account of the life of comedian Fanny Bryce, opens in a new production starring Beanie Feldstein. Jeff London reports. I don't think there's another musical that is as well-known and also as unknown than Funny Girl. That's Michael Mayer, who's directing the new production. Perhaps the biggest reason the show hasn't been revived on Broadway in 58 years is that it, and the much better known movie, were centered around the singular talent that is Barbara Streisand.
Lots of names were bandied about to play Fanny Bryce in the original production. Mary Martin, Aunt Bancroft, Carol Burnett. But composer Julie Stein went down to a nightclub in Greenwich Village and became enchanted with Streisand, he recounted in a radio interview in 1970. I think I went there 14 nights in a row. This knocked me out. And here I am in the middle of writing this score. And I hear this voice. And I said, I must have this voice. Don't tell me not to fly, I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade? It was an alchemical thing that while they were making it, they were also creating with Barbara, the Barbara of legend. Director Michael Mayer again. So the show was continually becoming more and more about Barbara's own personal story and less and less about Fanny Bryce. Mayer grew up with grandparents who regaled him with stories about seeing Fanny Bryce perform in the Ziegfeld Follies, doing unapologetically Jewish shtick. She knew she didn't look like the other girls. She knew she didn't sound like them. And Bryce became one of the highest paid and best known entertainers on Broadway. So while Michael Mayer was familiar with Fanny Bryce, he'd only seen Funny Girl once and thought it fell apart in the second act. When he was asked to do a revival in London seven years ago, he enlisted playwright Harvey Firestein to do revisions. The point of my job was to give you the funny girl of your memory, even though it's almost got nothing to do with it. Firestein's revisions gave more focus in the second act to the disintegrating marriage between Fanny Bryce and con artist Nick Arnstein, giving their relationship more heft. We put back in two songs from elsewhere, and we took out a little here and reused something else and gave it more modern motivations. Fanny is being played by Beanie Feldstein, who's best known for the film Booksmart and for playing Monica Lewinsky on TV. Director Michael Mayer says she has a sensibility for the times. She felt very modern and fresh and Jewish and hilariously funny and a brilliant actress and a lovely singer and unlikely but fantastic dancer. Listen, I've got 36 expressions. Sweet as pie to tough as leather. And that's six expressions more than all them Barrymore's put together. I mean it quite genuinely when I say this is like my dreams coming true. This is my lifelong dream. Beanie Feldstein says she watched Funny Girl on a continuous loop when she was a small child. So much so that she begged her mother for a Funny Girl themed birthday party when she was three. And she's all in for the revised version, which was changing even a week before opening night. Those songs are in your soul, but as far as the the character and the story and the script, and certainly because Harvey had done so much work on it and was going to continue to do so much work on it, I wanted to approach it with brand new eyes and as if we were creating a brand new story. But first, be a person who needs people.
But even with a revised script, Feldstein notices something as soon as the music starts. We have a group of people that sing along, know every word, have loved it for almost 60 years. Which makes her feel like one of the luckiest people in the world. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at Mathnasium.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight, lows about 39 degrees, still on the windy side. Weekend gets off to a nice start. Sunshine tomorrow, light winds, highs right about the mid-60s. Overcast skies, though, for Sunday may need a sweater or jacket as we get to just about 48 degrees tops. 63 degrees now in Boston. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A senior Russian general reveals the Kremlin's plans to seize control of even more of Ukraine. Ukrainians aren't optimistic about peace with Russia. The peace will be after the victory because you can't make any agreements with people like this. It's Friday, April 22nd. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, China has enforced strict regulations on its tech platforms, but this crackdown has sparked such instability in financial markets the government may be having second thoughts. And lawmakers in Florida have voted to strip Disney World of its special tax district status. The revenue that this district collects goes away. This extra layer of tax is illegal outside of the district and the counties can't replace it. More on the effect this move could have on local taxpayers. Also, the new Queen Elizabeth Barbie doll. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After a federal judge ended the mask mandate Monday, the Biden administration has not asked the courts to put a pause on the ruling during the appeals process. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Dolphin reports, law experts suggest it may be because the government does not want the mask mandate to go immediately back into effect. The government may be taking its time appealing the ruling of Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell for a reason, says Stephen Vladek. He teaches law at the University of Texas, and he says because the CDC mask mandate is already set to expire on May 3rd. It seems possible that the government's real goal is to wipe off of the books Judge Mizell's ruling striking it down. This is based on a legal doctrine that if the dispute in a case becomes moot during the appeals process, the higher court can vacate the lower court's decision. Vladek says this way, Mizell's ruling wouldn't be a precedent looming over CDC, limiting its powers in the future. 
Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Ukrainian officials say Russia is shifting some of its forces away from the shattered port city of Mariupol and refocusing its military efforts on eastern Ukraine. Russia has indicated it intends to wrest control of that area from Ukraine. Russian and Ukrainian forces appear to be poised for a major battle for control of the country's industrial heartland, with Ukraine upping its calls for Western help. A lawsuit challenging Governor Ron DeSantis' congressional map has been filed less than 24 hours after it passed. As Valerie Crowder with member station WFSU reports, the plaintiffs argue the map violates Florida's constitutional requirements. Civil rights and voting rights groups bringing the suit argue that DeSantis's map is an intentional partisan gerrymander in violation of the state constitution's Fair Districts Amendment. The map would give Republicans a 20 to 8 seat advantage, even though the state's voter registration numbers are nearly evenly split between the two major parties. Plaintiffs also argue that the map violates the state constitution's ban on drawing districts in a way that weakens minority voting strength. DeSantis's map would erase two congressional districts represented by African-American Democrats. For NPR News, I'm Valerie Crowder in Tallahassee. On the heels of a New York Times report featuring audio from a call made by House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy after the 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, McCarthy is said to have had a positive call with former President Donald Trump. That's according to people familiar with the discussion. According to the Times report, shortly after the January insurrection, McCarthy told Republican leaders he planned to urge Trump to resign. McCarthy's disputed that despite being heard on the audio tape saying exactly that. A rough end of the week on Wall Street. The Dow was down nearly 1,000 points today. The Nasdaq fell 335 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Beacon Hill today, a big step toward legalized sports betting in the Bay State. WBUR's Steve Brown has details. Until now, the state Senate has been cool to allowing sports wagering in Massachusetts, even as many neighboring states have allowed it. Last summer, the House overwhelmingly approved a bill legalizing betting on collegiate and professional sports. The Senate Ways and Means Committee has now okayed a bill that would allow anyone 21 or older to bet on professional sporting events. That differs from the House bill and will likely set the stage for both branches to try to come up with some sort of a compromise. The Senate estimates their bill would bring in $35 million a year to the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Former Fall River Mayor Jaisal Correa is now behind bars. Today, he reported to a federal prison in Berlin, New Hampshire, to begin serving a six-year sentence. Correa was convicted last year of defrauding investors in his company and extorting money from marijuana businesses that wanted to operate in Fall River. The former mayor was originally to report to prison last December, but a judge granted him several delays over the winter. UMass Amherst is moving ahead with a plan to have its campus run entirely on renewable energy in 10 years. University leaders announced the goal today on this Earth Day. They predict the transition will cost at least $500 million. And Cambridge-based Biogen has withdrawn its application seeking approval to sell its controversial Alzheimer's drug in Europe. The biotech company made the announcement today. European regulators have expressed concerns about the drug's safety and efficacy. Biogen says it stands behind the treatment and is leaving the door open to applying again. 
In the U.S., Medicare and Medicaid have sharply limited their coverage of the drug, and many private insurance companies won't pay for it. Red Sox start up a series with Tampa Bay Rays tonight. Game time is 7-10, and in the forecast, nice weather continues overnight tonight. Clear and chilly down around 40. Weekends looking dry. Sunshine tomorrow in the low to mid-60s. Sunday clouds roll in. Temperatures pull back to about 48 degrees. Still 63 degrees now in the Boston area at 606. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant research information with full-text databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. Learn more at EBSCO.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A senior Russian military commander said today that Moscow wants to control Ukraine's Donbass region to the east and the entirety of the country's south. It would connect Russia to the Crimean Peninsula that it annexed in 2014 and to a pro-Russian separatist enclave that's clear across southern Ukraine in Moldova. NPR's Ada Peralta joins us from Kharkiv to discuss the latest developments. Hi, Ada. Hey, Ari. How are these revelations being received in Ukraine? Are people preparing for what sounds like a a long offensive? Look, in a lot of ways, uh, this is what Ukrainian leaders have been warning about. They have said that Russia was just taking a break and that they had intentions that are much bigger than the Donbass region. Uh, Russia has just acknowledged that they are not only interested in all of southern Ukraine, but that they're also eyeing the pro-Russian separatist region in Moldova. The military officials I've spoken to here say they know what's coming and that they're prepared. And this comes as we are hearing about what city officials call mass graves outside the port city of Mariupol, holding remains of as many as 9,000 people. You are north of Mariupol, which has been another front line in this war. Tell us what you're seeing. So look, first, a little about what we know about these mass graves in Mariupol. And it comes from satellite images. It shows that there are about 200 of them. And this is uh, not out of line with what uh, even the UN Human Rights Agency is saying. Um, They say they've documented some 2,400 civilian deaths in this conflict. Um, And here in this city in Kharkiv, and especially the areas around here, civilians are under constant bombardment. Every day we're hearing shelling, we're seeing plumes of smoke. The emergency services say that they're pulling bodies out of buildings. Yesterday we went uh, to a small town called the Malarohan, which is just east of here and about an hour's drive to the Russian border. Uh, we went there to try and get a sense of how this war is being fought. Let's listen and a warning, uh, there are sounds of explosions in this piece. In the middle of a field, we see the charred carcasses of a tank and a helicopter. Both have the letter Z painted in white, which is how Russians tag their equipment. According to our military escort, the village of Malarohan, just east of Kharkiv, was liberated at the end of March, but this helicopter was shot down days ago. As we step out, we get another reminder that this battle is not yet over. Tatiana, a military escort, says a lot of people have died here, civilians, Ukrainian soldiers, and Russian soldiers too, who she says they buried in a mass grave on the side of a hill. The Russians lost the first battle in this war, she says. And now they are like desperate and they just shoot whatever they can, whatever they can hit, like blind. 
We see a plume of smoke rising in the distance. Most people in this town have fled, but 67-year-old Natalia Blisniuk says she has nowhere to go, even though her house is in tatters. Uh, the roof is broken, the windows are broken, they have spent a lot of time in the basement. Uh, well, there's shelling everywhere around the village. Do you understand what this war is about? What is it about? No, they don't understand. Who knows who is right and uh, whose fault it is? We need peace, that's the only that we need. Residents we spoke to say it's unclear which army destroyed what. Across town, Ukrainian soldiers walk into a bombed-out warehouse. Russian soldiers turned it into a base, but a Ukrainian rocket smashed through the walls and into the basement, leaving everything coated in black suit. Captain Daniil looks through the spoils. The Russians left in a hurry. And uh, it's possible because uh, our forces uh, come here very fast. In their haste, Russian soldiers left medicine, food, rubber boots. The Neil steps in front of a table full of unused bullets. He says the irony of fate. He's methodical. One at a time, he flicks the bullets into his palm. Now these bullets will kill the people who brought them here. All of the Ukrainian soldiers we speak to are full of conviction. This is a war for freedom. It's a war of Russian aggression. We drive to the outskirts of town to a Ukrainian military position. Second Lieutenant Dmitry says this war has become an artillery battle. Russians, they are not very good at fighting. Uh, they, uh, they are good at shelling and sending rockets, but um, when they are close, they have a lot of casualties. So in this region, every day, shells, mortars and unguided missiles are lobbed in the general direction of Ukrainian positions. They destroy homes, businesses, schools, even health facilities. The human suffering, says 2nd Lieutenant Dmitry, is the thing that makes this so heartbreaking. Do you think there's a chance for peace here? The peace will be after the victory, because they, you can't make any agreements with people like this, after everything they have done. The human suffering, he says, is also the thing that will make this war so hard to untangle. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Malarohan. In their forthcoming book, New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns offer new details about how Republican congressional leaders Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell privately supported removing Donald Trump from office for his role in helping foment the January 6th attack on the Capitol. McCarthy yesterday called the report, quote, totally false and wrong. And then the reporters offered up their receipts late last night by releasing audio they obtained from a January 10th phone call. It backs up their reporting and makes clear McCarthy lied. Here's the key portion of that tape. I got it. And the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass. And it would be my recommendation we should be done. Trump, of course, did not resign, and McCarthy quickly realigned himself as a loyalist to the former president. NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. Hi, Sue. Hey there. 
So it's rare to catch any politician so clearly in a lie. How is this reverberating on Capitol Hill? Well, I think what matters most for McCarthy here is what Republicans make of it. And in that sense, it hasn't made a ton of waves. Hmm. You know, privately, a lot of Republican lawmakers felt the exact same way McCarthy did in those immediate days after the attack. But McCarthy has since repeatedly and consistently proven that he's going to be loyal to former President Trump, even clearly over his own personal moral objection. So while both McCarthy and McConnell were horrified by Trump's actions that day, and, and in many ways they said so publicly at the time, it became pretty clear to both of them that their members did not share that horror and they wouldn't have the support to move forward with any kind of punitive actions against Trump. McCarthy famously flew to Mar-a-Lago and was photographed with Trump just weeks after the attack. McConnell flirted with voting to convict Trump in the impeachment trial, but ultimately didn't because, as they also report in their book, McConnell told a friend, quote, I didn't get to be leader by voting with five people in the conference. Huh. Now, Trump and McCarthy have had a pretty rocky relationship. McCarthy was not originally a Trump supporter back in 2016. They had a falling out immediately after January 6th, but they are right now seen as close allies. And McCarthy is on the path to become speaker if Republicans win the House in November. So do you think this tape could hurt McCarthy's chances? It seems unlikely, and here's why. You know, President Trump values loyalty to him above all else. And what this episode illuminates very brightly is that McCarthy's going to be loyal no matter what. Hmm. I mean, why would Trump not want that man to be speaker? You know, it's not like lying to the New York Times is a disqualifying act to Donald Trump mm -hmm. or honestly to most House Republicans. So as long as Trump wants McCarthy to be speaker, it's hard to see how these revelations change much. There's no one else angling for the job among House Republicans. And the lawmakers who would most likely be troublemakers for McCarthy are the Trump loyalists. So if it's OK by Trump, it's going to be OK by them. Um, you know, that being said, if Trump were to publicly pull support from McCarthy, then yes, he would have a problem on his hands. Briefly, Sue, Republicans are very well positioned in the midterms. Trump has not ruled out running again in 2024. Is it fair to conclude here that the events of January 6th did absolutely nothing to dim his power within the party? Yeah, I mean, the big picture here is next year, Congress could be led by two men who will clearly set aside any personal objections to Trump's actions because they don't have the support from within to do otherwise. McCarthy's already said he would shut down the committee investigating the January 6th attack. And McConnell's already said if Trump wins the nomination, he will support him for president again. Okay. NPR's Susan Davis, thank you. You're welcome. What do you get the monarch who has everything for her 96th birthday? Queen Elizabeth II celebrated her big day yesterday in private, but her public celebrated with a song from the Coldstream Guards at Windsor Castle. And a 41-gun salute in Hyde Park. Another gift the Queen got yesterday was her own Barbie. The Queen Elizabeth II Platinum Jubilee doll celebrates the Queen's 70 years on the throne, a record for a British monarch. She's decked out in an ivory gown and blue sash. Of course, she's wearing a crown atop her white curls and her royal medallions and ribbons. The doll's stern, regal face kind of makes it look like a pensive Helen Mirren. It costs $75. And if you're thinking about getting one, sorry, Mattel has already sold out. Yeah, we can already hear the disappointed sighs from the collectors and Anglophiles listening now. But don't lose hope. You still have time to track one down, maybe secondhand, before the Queen's four-day jubilee celebration, which begins June 2nd. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30, the Pew Research Center says about 70 percent of Americans support prioritizing alternative energy such as wind and solar, but the industry is facing economic challenges. That story ahead on Marketplace. In business, a low-cost carrier will start flying between Boston and Iceland next month. Play Air announced this week it'll begin service at Logan May 11th. Boston will be the second U.S. city it serves. Play Air has many routes in Europe and fills a gap left by Wow Air. Wow abruptly went out of business three years ago. Wall Street numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Standard Company, helping to keep your home comfortable with plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical solutions. Learn more at bostonstandardplumbing.com. And Celebrity Series, presenting Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, April 28th through May 1st at the Vox Center Wang Theater. Learn more at celebrityseries.org. Down went the Dow today, and it kept falling until it lost 981 points, about two and three quarters percent. It finished the fourth straight week with a loss to close at 33,811. S&P dove about two and three quarters percent as well to end the day at 42.72. The Nasdaq lost two and a half percent to finish the week at 12,839. It's 6.19. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Join us Tuesday, April 26th for WBUR Member Night featuring a conversation with On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty. Tickets are free. Learn more at wbur.org slash event. Clear tonight, down around 39 for a low. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, back in the low to mid-60s. And then for Sunday, overcast and cooler, may not even make it to 50. 63 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. And Sunbug Solar offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Florida lawmakers have been busy this week in a special legislative session. Among other things, the legislature passed a bill revoking Walt Disney World's status as an independent special district. Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law today. The state gave Disney that status more than 50 years ago. It grants the company self-governing authority and exempts it from nearly all state regulations. Republicans in Florida decided to revoke it after Disney criticized the new law that limits discussion of LGBTQ issues in the classroom, the law that opponents describe as don't say gay. I spoke earlier today with Nick Papantonis, a reporter with WFTV in Orlando, and I asked him what the special status actually does for Disney. The way to think about a special district is like thinking about it like a city. It has the same functions almost to the T, where this is a place, is an extra layer of government that Disney has that allows it to control the functions on its own property. The district has a planning department. The district has uh, a sewer plant. It runs the fire stations. In return, instead of Disney approaching the county planning department or going to the county staff for services, 
Disney essentially controls the district that it's in. So it gets to ask itself for permission to do things and it gets to direct itself in a sense for other things. On the flip side, the district also collects the taxes, an extra layer of taxes like your municipal taxes that Disney in a sense pays itself. So if that gets undone and suddenly the surrounding counties, Osceola and Orange counties, are responsible for everything from sewer to permitting to filling potholes, what does that actually mean? What that basically means is that the revenue that this district collects goes away, and that's our big issue here. This extra layer of tax that the district has is illegal outside of the district, and the counties can't replace it. The counties are now going to be responsible for picking up all the services the district provides. So that sewer plant, those fire departments, that uh, planning department, they're going to have to do all of the work. They're also going to have to take on all of the debt that the district currently has, the municipal bonds that it's been issuing or it has issued to do the big projects like build a road. Is this a popular move? I mean, Governor Ron DeSantis has been pretty clear that it is punishment, full stop. The intention, yeah, was to punish Disney for speaking out against the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which you more popularly is known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Within the counties, it's hard to get a gauge, obviously, on every single citizen's opinion. Overwhelmingly, though, this is not a popular move in the counties itself. While a lot of people would like Disney to get fewer tax breaks, for example, they understand that the district is a net benefit to the area. This just is services that Disney is essentially paying for that the counties don't have to provide in that area. So hearing that when the the consequences of this, hearing that the property taxes for Orange County, for example, might have to go up 20 to 25% next year, nobody wants that. The special district isn't scheduled to fully dissolve until June of next year. Is there a chance that this gets renegotiated, that a deal gets cut before then? So everyone's looking at the two possible moves forward because we don't know how Disney's going to respond right now. And we also don't have insight into the minds of every single legislator. Uh, One of the avenues that could happen is that Disney chooses to sue the state government. The other path forward, and, and this is the one that attorneys think is the most likely scenario at this point, is that the legislator gave themselves time to get this done, right? June of 2023, that's 15 months from now. And that is after, importantly, the next legislative session, which is supposed to be starting up in January. There's a very good possibility, based on what Republicans and Democrats are saying in the in the chambers right now, as well as all the legal experts, that Disney uses its lobbying power to come back, sit down at the table with the with the officials, and hash out a modified agreement that maybe strips some of the powers that Disney has that it doesn't really use right now and maintains a lot of the things that the company really cares about. That's Nick Papantonis, reporter with WFTV in Orlando. Thanks for speaking with us today. No problem. Chinese tech stocks are having a rough year. The e-commerce giant JD.com, for example, is down 25%. Its competitor, Alibaba, is down 60 There are several reasons why, but one reason is firmly in the Chinese government's control. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma with our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. Ray Ma is a tech investor in China, and she has her own podcast called Tech Buzz China. If you were investing in listed companies, then you probably had a pretty crappy year, actually. (laughs) And there's there's still a lot of uncertainty going forward. 
And we wanted to know, why are these tech stocks in China having such a bad year? Ray told us about a phrase that was first used in China in the 1950s when China was led by Chairman Mao. But it has gained traction as this new buzzword in political circles in China over the past year. It's called common prosperity. Common prosperity contains with it a lot of ideas. The main goal is actually to double GDP per capita by 2035 and become what's called a middle developed country. Even though China is the world's second largest economy overall, when you divide that by its one and a half billion people, the average Chinese person is still pretty poor by American standards. And and that said, China has grown production enormously over the last four decades. It's done that by investing heavily in manufacturing and infrastructure. But China's growth formula has been associated with massive income inequality. China is focused on trying to make sure that the next stage of development is more equal across the board. The banner Common Prosperity is a sprawling, multifaceted set of aims. And yes, reducing inequality is part of it. But even here, it's also about reasserting the role of state power. It's this big shift back towards a more state-dominated economy after decades of China opening up its markets. And one of the ways that the state has been reasserting its power is by cutting certain big Chinese companies down to size through regulation. Now, it is worth mentioning that China is not clamping down on all tech companies, just the tech which isn't aligned with its strategic goals. But this crackdown has really decimated a lot of publicly traded Chinese companies. And there's always the risk that this downturn could spread into the wider Chinese economy, which would have ripple effects all around the world. And that leads us to a turning point. The government may have hinted that it thinks that it's gone too far in the taming of tech platforms. Yeah, you can get a sense of how it's changing its messaging based on a comment from China's vice premier, Liu He, just last month. And he said the government will, quote, actively release policies favorable to markets, unquote. He also said that the government would better coordinate regulations that might affect capital markets. One person who is especially looking for stability is President Xi Jinping. He's widely expected to be making a case for a third term as leader later in the year. That's something that hasn't happened in a half century. And it'd be a lot easier of a sell if the financial markets in China were not in chaos. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Nice weather continues this evening and tonight. Clear and chilly tonight, down around 40. Weekends looking dry. Sunshine tomorrow in the low to mid-60s. Then for a Sunday, gray skies. Temperatures pull back to about 48 degrees. 63 degrees still in Boston. Michael Walker pitches tonight as the Sox launch their series in St. Petersburg with the Tampa Bay Rays. J.D. Martinez will miss the game again tonight. He's got tightness in his leg. Game time is 7.10. It's 6.30. 
Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. I love running, I love good books, and I love hosting All Things Considered. I love being able to ask the questions that we all want answers to. Since you love great news coverage too, please help us out with a donation. Your old car, yes, no matter how old, can be turned into more of the news you love. Ready to donate? Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars.